If you look hard enough past the flashing lights and billboard signs, past the busy streets and suburban houses, you might find a little truth hidden inside a great song. To the bedroom music makers and garage wall shakers, to the cafe singers and travelling bands, to the street buskers and vinyl crate diggers, to big city dreams and small town life. This is Between the Houses. Hey everybody, welcome to Between the Houses. I'm Sam, I'm here with Dave, we play in a band called The Paper Kites, and we're back. We are. We're back again, Dave, how you doing? I'm really good. I've been doing lots of work at my house, so I'm, I'm happy to be doing something different for once. You guys are renovating, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, we've been renovating the house, so... It was a six-week project that's blown out to 13 weeks now. So <laughs> it's coming to the warmer months here in Melbourne, and I've actually packed all my summer clothes into a shipping container. Oh, no. So I've had to cut my pants into shorts because I can't bear the thought of buying more shorts because they're just waiting for me at the back of a container in a box. I think we had a Zoom meeting with you while you are in the midst of the renovations, and I think you're in, like, you know, your tradie gear. <laughs> I don't know. You'd look like... you. You've been working hard. Um, yeah, I would like to say I'm a I'm a tradie, but a few people have actually asked me to quote them on a job. I've just been walking the dog <laughs> or something, and just because I've got boots on and and shorts with paint on it. <laughs> hey, mate, are you uh, you're a painter, are you? Yeah, do you want to uh, come in and have a look at my bathroom? <laughs> I'm always tempted to say yes, but this is what musicians resort to when we can't tour or play music or That's right. rehearse. We haven't been able to do anything, have we? What have you been doing? I've been watching a lot of documentaries. Okay. I think I told you about it. I watched the Woodstock 99 documentary, and then I think I told you guys to watch it just because it yeah. was so interesting. Was that the Limp Bizkit year? Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. So, it was the last Woodstock before the turn of the uh, millennia. They had like all the who's who of new metal bands. So they had like Corn and Limp Bizkit. Yeah. Just like a lot of angry music. And, you know, the, the original Woodstock was remembered for peace and love. And, and even though when you actually look into it, it was, it was a disaster in its own way. But <laughs> this one, it's so interesting to watch this documentary. And it, it's essentially just like a bunch of angry frat boy white guys attending this festival you know, a bunch of like really awful things that happen, like sexual assaults. And I think there were a few deaths at the festival. Like, it was really intense. And just the way it was set up was just, you know, set up for disaster. It wasn't at the same place, was it? No, no. They'd found like an old, I think it was an old military base or an airfield or something. Yeah. So it was just hot concrete. The, the festival goers, like it was just heating up. Damn. Water was really expensive. So everyone was buying beer because it was cheaper. <laughs> I don't know if you remember like what you're into in the late 90s when sort of all that new metal thing was hitting it big. But I can't remember how old I was then, maybe only like 10 or 11. I had a Limp Biscuit CD that my mum threw out. My, my sister told my mum that I had it. Uh, and, and language was a bit, you know, a bit of a no-no in our house. And I had it turned right up and, and my mum came in and she, she <laughs> I had to sit down on the bed and play her a few songs. And then she just took it and she snapped it and threw it in the bin. Oh, man. Snap the yeah. disc. Snap the disc. 
and threw it in the bin. Oh, man. Did you cry? Well, I started to get pretty savvy after that at hiding the music I wasn't allowed to listen to. You know, I'd, I'd yeah. get some nice-looking album cover and then I'd, I'd sort of hide the album art behind that one, you know? That's what we had to resort to <laughs> yep. back in the golden age of CDs. Yeah, the old secret CD yes. wallet. Yeah. I think we've all got a CD or an album that was either confiscated or snapped <laughs> or thrown out by our parents at some point. That would be an interesting poll to take. It would. Because mine was um, so much for the afterglow, oh, Everclear. And that was that was a controversial record, was it, in your household? It was, yeah. Local God was pretty full on. Yep. And yeah, my parents confiscated that album and hid it in the pantry. They hid it? They didn't throw it out? Yeah, they hid it. I thought they threw it out. Yeah. But I went searching for chocolates one day <laughs> and like my mum used to hide the cooking chocolate as well because we used to just pilfer that <laughs> and any sweets we could find. And I was I was hunting for sweets one day and I found that Everclear album in a baking tray <laughs> Under a whole bunch of uh, other miscellaneous baking stuff. <laughs> so I, I redeemed the album. I found it and I hid it in my room and nothing was ever said. That's amazing. I remember my friend's mum in school, she had found a bunch of his CDs that he wasn't allowed to have. And he told her that they belonged to me. <laughs> and so I had this very awkward confrontation with her where she asked me, you know, do these belong to me? I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know that he'd said they were mine. So I, you know, I had to come clean and say that they weren't. But I felt bad. I should have, you know, I should have had his back. I'm sorry, Daniel, if you're listening. <laughs> I see a light against the evening pointing me to Well, we're here for a very important reason. Just over a month ago now, we spoke with the one and only Ainsley Wills. She is one of Australia's finest songwriters mm. and she's amassed a vast body of work since her first release in 2007, I think it was. Mm. She's celebrated for her songwriting, collaborations and her mentoring of young creatives. She's worked with Number One Dads, uh, Bujara, and most recently James Knight on her newest release, uh, which is beautiful. Uh, that's actually just been released between when we last spoke to her. Mm, really, really nice EP. We also had the pleasure of working with Ainsley in 2020 on our album Roses. She sung on our track Steal My Heart Away, which for me was a total dream come true. I don't know about <laughs> you, Sam, but we're, we're all pretty big Ainsley fans. Yeah. Um, but for me, sitting in that room with her, we actually got to do the session in real time, unlike a lot of the other songs. Um, so sitting with her in that room, uh, playing with her was, was so good. Yeah. So we caught up with Ainsley last month. Uh, from her home and we had a really cool chat with her yeah it was um she really opened up I thought I had a lot of questions because we've grown up in the same scene like she kind of started yeah. just a little bit before we started um and I think very early on in our days um when we were sort of playing smaller clubs and and venues she opened for us at a venue called the Northcote Social Club so that was the first time that any of us had seen her and since then, we were huge fans of her music and we've kind of followed everything she's done since then. And yeah. we've worked with a few of the same people, but we've never had the chance to work together. And 
So we had a lot of questions just about cutting her teeth in the Melbourne music scene and how she found it um, versus how we found it. Just our differing experiences growing up. So that was really interesting to just hear a bit of her story. Yeah, man, it was really good to talk to her. I was really enjoying the conversation. Yeah, she's not shy about things that difficult for her or things Mm. that sort of moved her forward or in a different direction and she's definitely especially amongst musicians Ainsley's revered for carving her own path Mm. in the especially the Australian music landscape yeah so I really respect her for that and um, love the way she's just created her own space and she's worked with exactly who she wants to work with and hasn't sort of succumbed to any pressure from labels or Mm. um, but within that is definitely a lot of struggle and a lot of crisis so it was it was really cool to hear from her how she navigated all of that yeah one of the best things about doing these collaborations has been getting to work with people we love people we Mm. genuinely love and also getting to do this podcast and have these conversations we were able to get to the source of Ainsley's creativity and Mm. on a personal level this conversation was really important for me Mm. so I hope everyone else enjoys it as well and I was just going to say Dave congratulations because Between the Houses has just been nominated for Best Entertainment Podcast at the Australian Podcast Awards yes hooray cue clapping track and cheers (laughs) to you sir right back at you it's been a pleasure all right let's jump into it. Here's our chat with Ainsley Wills. I have been growing a baby. Whoa. What? Congratulations. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. I'm 20 weeks as of yesterday, so <laughs> oh a little baby boy. Wow. Okay, that's going to change the course of this conversation. <laughs> Can I just say, last night Dave and I were preparing this and Dave said, gee, it's kind of going to be nice to, just different to talk to someone who's not a parent because we've had like... <laughs> Three or four straight parent interviews and conversations. Which we love. Yeah. Which we love. Which we yeah, love. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I'm pre-parent leading into being parent. Yeah. It's an interesting time. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of conversations I've had with Charlotte about this, about just like even telling people in the industry that you're pregnant, even though everything's gone to shit at the moment with COVID and whatever, mm. there's such a stigma attached to it that you almost don't want to say that you're pregnant because you're like, I'm still fully functioning for <laughs> the most part. Is there a stigma? Yeah, 100%. I think people don't mean to, but I think they look at you differently when they're like, oh, you know, she's got kids now, so she probably won't want to do this thing. Can't use her anymore. Yeah. I think it's changing though. Yeah, I think it is changing as well. Yeah. From from the, the people that we've talked to, it sounds like it is. And we had um, Aoife O'Donovan on talking about touring with her little girl mm. on, on a bus around the States and how that works. And they have like, you know, a super Mary Poppins style tour nanny who oh, comes whoa. on the road with them. So it's possible. It's definitely doable. It's just that we don't hear much about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's how I feel. I'm like, if I really want to do it, I'll make it happen. But I think maybe because you don't see a lot of women until now posting about being on the road and being a mum and breastfeeding mm. and all that kind of thing. Yeah. It's been a bit of a, taboo kind of situation that's how i feel Mm. and i've talked to a couple other women that have felt similar yeah about talking about wanting to have kids yeah well hopefully it is getting a bit more um commonplace to see yeah Mm. so where are you ainsley are you in melbourne these days i'm in massive ranges i don't know if you can see that but oh Oh, man that looks nice beautiful yeah beautiful we're looking out ainsley's uh bedroom windows here beautiful field 
some trees. <laughs> it's very descriptive. Just trying to explain it to the listener. Yeah, very, very beautiful part of the world. Mm-hmm. What's the pool for you there? I mean, I grew up in the country, so I'm, I was born in Albury, mm-hmm. which is just over the border of New South Wales and Victoria, and um, grew up in a place called Tabletop, which is about 20 minutes out of Albury. Beautiful property that overlooks the Hume Weir. So I was growing up in a – I was one of four, so I'm the youngest of four kids – my mum and dad are both teachers. Mm. My dad is an art teacher and mum was a food technologist. Does that mean a lot of good meals in the house? <laughs> yes. My mum's a great cook, great baker, my mum is. Amazing. But mm. Yeah, so my formative years, I suppose, were out on the farm and a lot of my memories, and maybe because I was the youngest and mum and dad had, you know, had three kids before me and I was left to my own devices quite a lot. So... I used to spend so many hours playing the piano. That was my first instrument, actually. Like singing wasn't really something I did. I probably sang a bit, but in terms of being expressive through an instrument, piano was first. And my auntie Annie would come and visit and she used to teach me how to play certain things on the piano. And thankfully I was gifted with a fairly good ear. And so she'd teach them to me. I'd remember them and play them. And then Mm. she lived in Ballarat and, you know, I was in tabletop, so I didn't see her all the time. But She probably knew my parents. They're all from Ballarat. Ballarat, there you yeah, go. There you go. Well, she, yeah, my mum grew up in Ballarat and her and my auntie lived near the lake, Lake Wenderee. Lake Wenderee, yeah. Yeah, beautiful Lake Wenderee. So I feel indebted to her and in terms of my upbringing and, and the surroundings, whilst sometimes I wanted to go into Aubrey and like hang out with my friends and have a city kid kind of experience, I feel really <laughs> grateful for being isolated like I was and I mean that's kind of informed where I am now like I feel like the idea of being on a country farm with not a lot of people around you for some of this seems like an absolute nightmare but for me it's like my happy place yeah yeah Yeah. I feel that for sure but how'd you end up in Melbourne well I just knew I wanted to do music music was like I knew I wanted to be a musician and then I was like what do I do to do that Mm. and my friend Matt who was a musical theatre aficionado and he wanted to study in Ballarat. And he's like, oh, I'm going to do this course. You should do their Diploma of Music, Jazz, Popular Music or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew that I sort of just had to do something that was going to sort of root me in starting this musical kind of trajectory. So, yeah. And there was nothing available in Aubrey at all. And I had this awesome friend who was like, come and we'll be housemates and study music together. And I was like, all right. And that's how it all began. That's cool. I didn't realise that you had lived in Ballarat for a while. Cause Two years, yeah. Th- that's amazing. My So both of my parents grew up in Ballarat. That's where they met each other. So I've got heaps of family up there and we used to go there every year for Christmas. Wow. So it's quite a special place to our family. But I have this great story that I only recently heard about. So... Mm. Josh in the band, our drummer, his dad and my dad are brothers. So Josh and I are cousins. Oh, wow. And our dads grew up on Leopold Street in Ballarat. And not too far from them lived a young Warren Ellis. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know if you know Warren Ellis. He's like Nick Cave's right-hand man. He plays violin in The Bad Seeds, Grinderman uh, and The Dirty Three. He's a legendary musician. And they used to see young Warren Ellis out and about all the time. But Warren's dad, John Ellis, was a guitar teacher and he taught my uncle how to play guitar. And John Ellis gave my uncle his Maiton guitar. I didn't know that. This beautiful old jumbo sunburst Maiton. 
And he's still got it now. It's this amazing guitar that I had no idea. <laughs> we used it, Dave, in the Woodland Sessions. It was that big old maiden. Oh, yeah. 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 So that guitar belonged to John Ellis, wow. Warren Ellis's dad. That is amazing. Wow. Great story. So, Ainsley, after coming from Ballarat, starting out in the Melbourne music scene, I know a lot of people say different things about Melbourneites at a show. Um, maybe they're critical or they're... You know, they decide quickly what they like and what they don't like. Arms folded. Totally. (laughs) What was your experience of cutting your teeth in the Melbourne music scene? Um, Well, the thing that I mark as a game changer was when I decided to, because after uni, I think I was making music that was really super Mm jazzified. And um, I realized that I didn't actually want to be a jazz singer. I didn't want to be in a jazz category. I didn't want to scat my way to heaven or anything. (laughs) So... Once I decided that, I was like, oh, I actually really love, you know, pop music is my thing. Yeah. I really do enjoy pop music. So decided to write a little EP and recorded it in my little Carlton granny flat that I was living <laughs> in at the time. And I was recording yeah. on Cubase and my partner at the time was showing me how to use Cubase and I just did everything myself. Yes. And so I recorded that, uploaded one song onto Unearthed and then Missy Higgins heard the song. Australian icon Missy Higgins. Yeah. Missy, love Missy. <laughs> she was um, looking for supports for her national tour Great. of her album. I think it was On A Clear Night. I can't remember exactly whether that was the album, but she'd picked one act from each state to support her. That was the competition mm. and she chose me for Victoria and I was like, whoa, okay, I'm going to have to get this EP done to be able to sell it at the merch stand on the night, which I did. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that was such an amazing learning curve. I mixed the EP myself and then the master engineer was like you gotta you gotta go back and do this again this is not (laughs) this is not right so I really learned I was learning a lot um through that whole process and then my first show was at the Palais wow at the Palais in 2007 which was just absolutely mind-boggling like I was like what and I still have a memory of the curtain being pulled back so I could come on the stage yeah it was quite an experience and because i ended up selling cds that night i was like what Mm -hmm. people actually wanted to buy the cds that's amazing (laughs) so that's where i was like oh well i'm gonna keep doing this i'm gonna do it again and then so it's it's funny that your first show was playing at the palais yeah my first big kind of melbourne show was there yeah there's such an iconic room and that's been on our bucket list to play since forever and we've We've finally it's only taken us like eleven years. <laughs> we finally booked it. Yeah. <laughs> we finally booked it. Um, we we would have been playing it in a few weeks, but obviously the whole tour has been postponed till the end of January. That's going to be awesome though when you get there. I know. That's I know. <laughs> have you? I, I guess a lot of people would say, you know, you're living far away from the city. You know, being a musician and needing to be in venues. And do you even have any reason to be back in Melbourne at the moment? No, I feel like my career has never been a really, I haven't really toured a lot in Australia. Mm-hmm. I've done a little bit of overseas touring, but even then I've probably always preferred the recording and creative part of this job. I do like performing when there's a need to perform like, okay, you've got an album coming out or you've released a single or whatever. If there's a, a really good reason to play, I love that. But generally, I, and especially now, I think because of being in the country and, and having a really quite a beautiful setup in terms of the studio and everything, I love the fact that I can just 
be writing mm. and then recording and releasing and not having to really leave my house. <laughs> That's the dream. <laughs> to the point where when I do go into the city, when everything's opened up, I get in and get out as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. I think you you yeah. become acclimatised to a slower pace. I think yeah. it really suits me. <laughs> Yeah. We'll move a soft brain. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a lot of the time that country folk that are used to country life are consistently frazzled with the amount of traffic when they come to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> I remember a situation not too long ago when my uncle and auntie came to visit from Ballarat yeah. and uh, my poor uncle had to lie down when he got there <laughs> because he was so overwhelmed by the traffic. I think there was maybe other things at play, like he still uses you know maps to get to places. So I think they got insanely lost. But my dad, when they left, had to actually, um, you know, drive in front of them and take them back out onto the freeway. <laughs> oh my God. It was an hour trip to get there just to sort of get them out of Melbourne. <laughs> it is a thing, though. It the traffic. Like if there's a few roadworks happening here and there's a build-up of cars, you're like, bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. No, but I can totally relate to what you were saying about you know, just wanting to stay in and write and, and make music, especially when you're living in such a beautiful place. Yeah. Is that what you've been up to recently? Just just living it up out in the Macedon Ranges, recording music, going for walks? Yeah, I've been doing quite a lot of arranging. I've got an EP or two EPs coming out actually, one at the end of this year and then one next year. Great. I'm doing some arranging, like string arranging for that at the moment and... Mm-hmm. I've got quite a few little things on the go keeping me afloat, like I'm recording a song in French oh, wow. for a French compilation record and I love France and Paris especially. I'm a hopeless romantic when it comes to Paris. And <laughs> um, I've always sort of dabbled in the language, but this opportunity came along, so I've sort of been learning French a little bit. And It's a beautiful language, isn't it? It's such a beautiful language. Like I know it's so cliche, but... It's just there's something about it, something about speaking it and like once you feel like you're a little bit closer to actually having the accent down pat. Do, have you are you nailing the accent or are you uh, yeah, I feel like I'm not I'm not nailing it, but I'm getting I think that that's one benefit of being a musician, learning a language, because you are so attuned to the different vowel shapes and yep. sounds and stuff like that. So even sometimes I'm like, I don't actually know what that word means, but I can mm-hmm. definitely say it like the French lady say in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. It's funny how you have an affiliation with a place. Like you guys would have toured so much and there'd be certain areas when you step into like, you know, step off the plane or off the tour bus, you're like, this feels like my people <laughs> or there, there's some kind of sort of connection that you have. And I've always felt that with Paris especially, sure. like this energetic kind of feeling of a liberated country. But I know that that's such a romanticised view of the actual <laughs> country, but I'm sticking to it. Or like going to Dublin for the first time. I remember going to Dublin and I caught the train there and I just I felt kind of like I was at some kind of surrogate home, like it felt like a home kind of feeling to me. Yeah, we've, we've spoken so much about uh, connection to to land and people and food and culture. So we know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Places we've visited and, you know, our own countries of origin, where our parents are from, and but also other people we've spoken to. And it's, um, it's something so powerful. Mm. It also gives you a greater appreciation for our nation's Indigenous heritage and Absolutely. how Aboriginal people feel connected to the land in a way that, that we will never 
never understand fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I really love how you're finding ways to push yourself. And as a musician, I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I need to be playing shows, I need to be touring and doing things. But you sound really content and satisfied with pushing yourself where you're at. Yeah, I think it's partly because I never, I, I probably never really settled into the show pony you can't uh, that's not me at all yeah. that's not my personality but mm-hmm. I was you know lead singer of my musical project ever since 2007 mm. and it's because I wanted to make music and then you, of course once you write it and you want to release it and then it's like oh well there's this cycle that you can go through where you tour it but I don't think I was ever really settled and comfortable with doing that it was all it's kind of was like okay well, this is part of the job and I'll do it and I'll try and do it to the best of my ability mm. and feels like now and I think age has something to do with it too you sort of just become more comfortable with who you are and what you prefer to do and I've sort of let go of any idea of what this job looks like Mm. I just love creating and I think that that's the base level for me in terms of continuing and being a musician that releases music I think as long as I'm creating and not being afraid to maybe in the first instance I was a little bit reluctant to release certain things like Mm. maybe it's a bit too weird or it's a little bit it's not really what people are listening to at the moment or what was making you feel that though like just the general pressure of I think partly it's a story I created in my head yeah but I think it was also based on I'm talking about like back in 2010 knowing that Triple J had a really big hold on the musical community and, and we're so good at helping people mm. promote their music and it's been such a fantastic station and resource for a lot of musicians yeah. and you realize once you get a few rotations on J with a song or two it's like oh wow they are really powerful and they can really help you sell tickets at shows or, mm-hmm. or raise a profile mm-hmm. and I think back in that time when I was just sort of trying to get my music out there more and more I did have that in my peripheral of like is this going to be something that they could potentially play on Triple J or Mm. it's definitely not a good way to create. It's limiting. Yeah. It's completely limiting. But at the time I definitely felt like I was trying to really push to be considered on that station. And then, of course, we make a joke. I'm sure you've heard of it. Then you you cross over to Double J where all musicians go to die. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, there's a place Uh, for us. Adult contemporary has a home. I was just going to say, for those those that don't know, Triple J is sort of the leading youth broadcaster in Australia, you would say. Mm. I mean, from really the 90s into the 2000s, probably up until, dare I say, just the last couple of years. I mean, they're still, you know, probably right at the forefront of pushing youth entertainment in Australia. But since... Things like Spotify took off, maybe radio has lost a little bit of its power. But back then, like even when we were starting in 2010, that was how you became known around the country was was really Triple J. Yeah. They had various offshoots of that, like, you know, Unearthed was really important uh, for a lot of people, for us as well, like, you know, try and get your songs onto Unearthed so Triple J might find it. And then that was what it was, you know, people thought that was the way in to try and get a leg up in the industry. And and it it wasn't like, it's not just you, obviously, like it was everyone. That was what we were told because that's how it was. Mm. Thankfully, with Spotify and other stream sites and social media and everything changing Mm. the game in terms of how you can get your music out and how you can connect to your Mm. your fans directly, like that's, I think, even the playing field. I know a lot of people have mixed views about 
streaming platforms and everything, but I, I actually see it as quite a positive yeah. Um, way of connecting to people all over the world you know you're not limited to just like people listening to australian radio it's like people can hear your music from and people that never would have discovered your music at all are now able to listen to a song they could be in turkey or yeah it's so great isn't it and being able to access that information on the back end the data of spotify as the artist is really fun as well what are your thoughts on at least for us when we got out of Australia and we're we're able to play overseas, you realise how insular the Australian scene is and how things that we deemed really important are not so important in the grand world scheme of things, you know, like people overseas are like, what's Triple J? You know, they don't care about it. It's not in their radar as something that is is really important. They just are there for the music. And as you say, like Spotify and and streaming services have really done a lot to level the playing field and, and to make sure that there are other ways to get your music heard but that wasn't the case that long ago here and I I mean I know of a lot of musicians that have been quite burned they feel by Triple J you know because they stopped playing their music or they didn't get a feature album and then I don't know they kind of hold on to a lot of that as being responsible for the reason that you know they didn't break or they, they didn't go as far as they felt like they could have what do you think about that like about the people that feel that they were owed something that they didn't get it's a really good question my first thought is that when we're younger and maybe this is there are always going to be exceptions to the rule but we all have this really interesting very common trajectory of what you think your career is going to be like as a musician Mm -hmm. it's kind of pretty limiting I think like over the years as you are in the industry trying to garner attention and 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 build a team around you and everything like that you realize that um it's tough you know it's there's a lot of people doing exactly the same thing and we're all vying for the same spots and everything yeah sort of not answering your questions directly but it's just sparked a thought that I've had a couple of times is like our musical destiny or creative destiny is so much more interesting than what we think in the first instance Mm -hmm. of course being a massive touring stadium artist would be a dream come true for most musicians. Mm. They want to be heard by so many people, but there's so much more interesting trajectories that you can take if you allow yourself to actually fall into like, oh, mine doesn't look like that anymore. Mine doesn't look like the trajectory that I had when I was a kid. It looks a little bit more like a bit more odd, a bit more nuanced. Like I can do things that I didn't know I could. Um, Getting back to that question, I think a lot of people did put their eggs in one basket Mm, when it comes to like Triple J playing their music and especially when you've gotten really, I've never got like feature album or anything like that on Triple J. I got mostly just some rotations, Mm. which is awesome and you hope for that. But then there's a point I think and I think this is a skill that the the industry gives you is you build resilience Mm. because, you know, I think about my first days like I graduated uni in 20, uh, when was that, 2005, and I'd studied music for five years up to that point. Mm-hmm. And then I had a lot of musical knowledge, but I had no idea of what the industry was at all. Like I didn't know how to release music or I'd been doing some shows and some some playing in-house at uni and whatever. But when it came to me thinking, all right, I've got an EP, I want to put it out, how do I book a show? And I'd be sending emails to bookers and then not getting any reply. And then I'd sort of have to keep sending emails or trying other tacts. And rather than then relying on someone to give me the opportunity, I suppose, I'd I'd define my own opportunity. Like I think sometimes people are waiting for things to find them. But I think 
a lot of the time you have to go get it yourself. Mm, if yeah. you have a real passion and desire to be heard or for music to be out there, but no one's answering your emails or whatever, it's like, well, you've got to find a different way. Yeah. And I think that that skill is such a, an important one and that's, that's helped sustain me mm. and a lot of people, I think, in this career because you can't rely on Triple J. You can't yeah. guarantee that they're going to play your music. You can't guarantee that Double J are going to play your music or that you'll land any kind of PR you know, you could pay for a PR campaign for a release and not land anything. Mm. You know, it's not a guarantee. So what I always try and remember is it all comes back to what are you doing it for? Yeah. Like, of course, you want to create sustainability and be able to keep playing music and releasing music and not go broke. But it is really the creativity and that fire mm. that you get in your belly when you're making something that should propel your career, not the external kind of validation or the platforms which are going to make you or break you, so to speak. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, it's funny. Our artists want to be a part of something. We want to be a part of, you know, a broadcast station. We want to be part of a booking agency or a management company. But if you're trying to jump into a channel that already exists, you're missing out on the opportunity of creating your own channel. And when you do that, management, booking agencies, broadcasters, they want to be part of what you're doing. Everyone wants to be part of something and our experience has been when we've pushed our own way forward that has attracted people to us in some instances mm. yeah i was gonna ask you guys that because i have a memory of i think when i played with you guys back in must have been tw like 2010 or 11 like ages ago i think it was just before you released your first album so that's 2013 2012, no. I think it was. 2012. Yeah, right. But I remember having an impression of, of you guys thinking that, like, you were doing something outside of it, kind of exactly what you were saying, Dave, like outside of what was expected or you were kind of just doing your own thing and you were just standing behind it and you weren't looking to other people to validate what you were doing. It just sort of seemed like you had a really strong vision. That was my impression. Oh, and it's nice just funny you should mention that, that that's, you know, you've kind of gone in your own ways and it's and gained so many amazing fans of your music through probably doing exactly what we're talking about, being authentic and true to what you're trying to do, not necessarily looking to other people to help you get there. Yeah. Thanks, I think. <laughs> nice to hear. We, we were just talking the other night about um, the Melbourne scene and our experience of it and I just had this picture of how as a band from the even from the beginning we'd already made a, a bit of a path for ourselves and in, in what we were going to do because it came together fairly casually mm. almost by accident the five of us but as we moved forward even the first show we booked in melbourne we kind of handpicked the lineup and did exactly what we wanted to do in so in a way i was saying to sam yesterday we kind of just parachuted into the melbourne music industry or onto the scene, if you want to say, and never really made many connections with other bands or artists in a way that maybe I was used to previously playing in punk bands. You make friends with the bands you play with, you mm. play with the same band like week in, week out, and you always you have like a network of people who you're always playing with, uh, which is really cool. But as the Paper Kites, we've, we've always been really careful, I think, and really thought through how we want to where we want to play, what kind of shows we want to do, who we want to support if we're doing a tour like that. So it's had, it's had, there's been advantages. It's been really great because we've been able to push our own way forward. Mm. But then in, in another sense, 
I think we've missed a bit of community community yeah. in that way that we see other bands enjoying and other other artists enjoying too. So because we've we've pushed out of the country a lot and, and tried to grow uh, internationally as much as we can. Was that a, a goal from the beginning? Like, did you guys feel like you you were always heading to an international market, or was it? No, I don't think so. I, I was so surprised when we were first told we were going even to the states. But I think for us. At the time, at least, it didn't feel like there was much of a scene. So, mm. and, and even in terms of things like Triple J and such, like it was definitely on our radar, but we still decided to push ahead regardless because we just felt like there wasn't that scene there and, and it wasn't what we wanted to be doing. So once the opportunity came up to play overseas and we, and we did that, we just realized that there's a lot more to it. And perhaps that made the decision to not push so hard for things that we thought were important a little easier because we knew that there were other things out there. But that's not the case for everyone. You know, there's some people that grow up in Australia thinking that's the only way. That's the only way to get your music out there. Mm. I, and it's so not every time I've been overseas to play, you sort of just realise what a little bubble we're in here. And it's a beautiful bubble, don't get me wrong. There's Like I agree with you, there's an amazing bunch of musicians that are doing incredible music, but you do get a more narrow view potentially of how things can be because of how small we are. I mean, I remember doing Reeperbahn Festival in Germany. Mm-hmm. And- We've also done that one. <laughs> <laughs> and um, having done such a different experience of how people were perceiving the music I was playing and that they were hearing it for the first time. And obviously that music in their culture is, is very different to music in our culture, I think, because it's older, you know, it's a more established culture. But even that experience in itself was like, oh, wow, this this is kind of resonating and landing in a different way than it does back home. And, yeah, it's such a healthy reminder, I think, to know that there's always other ways of people hearing music. Mm. It just gives you this this global perspective of, hey, like music is so cross-cultural. It can be a soundtrack for anyone's life, you know, not just in our native tongue or whatever. Also, we were, Sam, we were lucky enough to work with people pretty early on who saw that there is a ceiling in the Australian music industry. Yes. And I remember them saying, like our management saying, we've got to spread your wings early so that you don't get caught under that ceiling. And and I think that was smart. Don't you find that amazing that there's so many, like if you think back to your career from when you began up to, to now, it's like there's always these little turns and junctions that you experience and that someone telling you something like that can you know, a little bit of information, a little bit of influence here has has sort of probably changed your trajectory from what it, it could have been. Mm. I find that really fascinating, like the little dots, you know, that have all been joined up to lead to now. It's hard to remove the feeling of it being some kind of destiny. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like for us, we soon discovered the importance of working with good people and we were very lucky in that mm. but i feel like you know you having charlotte that's charlotte abrams who is your manager um i think she's incredible I, i've actually never met her but we've talked a lot via email she's amazing i think what she's doing is great and she's really sort of pushing some amazing artists in, in you and angie and and everyone else that she's got on board and doing it in a different way i feel like she's approaching it a bit more from an emotional aspect uh, emotional well-being of you guys as well mm-hmm. what do you feel about like you know working with or the importance of working with people who are good people that have your best interests at heart yeah i mean i can't you can't really stress enough how important that is i have i work with a lot of younger musicians mentoring and stuff like that and that comes up a lot because you've got these young people starting to write songs and they're like oh 
they're seeing that they want to be like this artist or this artist. And then they're like, oh, how do I do that? Yeah. And how do I get a, a manager or how do I get a booking agent? And I always stress to them what I was talking about before with like know that your trajectory is not necessarily going to look like that. You're not just going to get a manager and get a booking agent necessarily straight away. Mm. It takes a little bit of time. I mean, for me, I was self-managed right up until 2015, 16. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I sort of try and stress to these younger musicians that it's so important to trust your intuition Mm. you know when you talk to a person whether you think that you've got some kind of rapport or whether you feel like I think it's working with people in this industry or in in any job really you got to have that familial kind of feeling I think I think it is about building a network of people around you that feel like family and Charlotte definitely feels like that for me and I was so fortunate that she came on board to work on this project because it's just been the most rewarding and freeing and inspiring time, really. Like, because she's she's a creative, like she's a creative mm. person. So, and I see that in her, and she obviously sees that in me. And so it's a really quite a collaborative relationship. Yeah. Whereas, obviously, different management models, especially older types, mm. they do look really, really different. And um. I mean, there's been instances in my career where I have been helped along by a lot of fantastic people, but there's always been a few um, forks in the road where potentially uh, there was one time when I was offered to sign to it like a smaller imprint of Warner mm-hmm. and um, the person who I was being consulted by at the time, a very generous man, hooked me up with this deal and then it was kind of like this faceless deal. I didn't know who was going to be doing my PR, who was going to, like I just felt like my EP or whatever it was at the time is going to go to the bottom of this pile mm-hmm. and I'll feel shit about it. And I I suppose this the, the relevance of me talking about this is just because I, you need to trust your intuition and your gut yeah. and know that like, okay, this looks like an opportunity from the outside looking in to a lot of people, but when you're in it and you're experiencing it and it doesn't feel right, mm. then you got to trust your gut and go, Nah, there'll be another opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I think more and more artists want people that take their their mental health seriously as well. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, that's not everyone. Like, there's still like not great people out there in the industry taking advantage of artists. But hearing the stories about it, I, I would hope are making particularly young artists like almost put that first before everything. You know, that's like, right. Are you going to, you know, respect and, and, and take care of my well-being in that in that way? It is so important. It's like without that healthy mental health of the artists and the managers and the people around mm. you, it's a pretty futile pursuit, yeah. you know. you got to be well. you got to be mentally well and resilient. You have to be resilient in this, yeah. especially nowadays. Like obviously you would have had a lot of conversations with people that are struggling in the industry because they're not touring as much anymore or not at all or they keep having to put shows off and it looks like a completely hopeless kind of situation, to be honest. Like it mm. doesn't look mm. great. But then I think part of the, the resilience that I've definitely learned from being in the industry is that it's about innovation and it's about mm. where to next. Like we, we're creators, we're people that are able to make things and build things that are going to lead us into a new time. Yeah. Mm. I was interested to know, Ainsley, you mentioned that you teach and mentor young artists and students. What would you say to one of your students when they ask you, 
well, what should I do first? What should I concentrate on? What do you tell them? First and foremost, it's always about building a really, really good catalogue of music. And I think being unbridled in that as much as possible. So when you're that young, there's a real freedom Hmm. that comes with being a young musician and you're just like, you can make any kind of music you want and you don't have to apologise for it. So I always sort of, I mean, it's something that I stole from Patti Smith, who I think was told this by William Burroughs. Mm And he was saying to Patty, you know, you just got to, back in the day when she was sort of poor and writing music and trying to be an artist, I think he was like, just be concerned with doing really, really good work. Yeah. And then your name will become its own currency. Yes. So I always think about that in terms of the music itself is what fuels our whole existence in this industry. Yeah. And so that's what I focus on um, first and foremost is like, Getting confident with their ideas and the language around mm. it. Like there's a girl, I, a really gorgeous girl I work with, and she's is still at high school and she's worked with The Push recently who have helped her make a song and she's written a song and then they've helped her arrange it and helped go into the studio and track it and everything like that. And I said, you know, it's a really daunting process yeah. when you've got other people playing for you and I think sometimes there is a tendency to be apologetic when you're young and you feel like you don't know what you're doing, but a lot of the time it's instinctual. And when you're younger, I feel like you're more in touch with the instinctual kind of side. Mm. So the other conversations that we have is around trusting the choices that you make at that time, Mm. pushing for them. So, you know, rather than someone else coming in and going, well, I actually think for this section you should do this instead. Like if you really don't agree with that and you feel like you have a vision, then you've got to kind of stand behind it rather than apologize for it because it's at the end of the day, your name is going to be on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite amazing working with people that are just beginning their creative careers because you do feel like you have something to offer. I think the last time I saw you play was at Howler. Great venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were playing with Hiatus Coyote. That would have been a few years ago now. Yeah, I kind of remember um, that. As main support for Hiatus, you played a half an hour set and I was there from the start and there was people talking in the room, which is classic Melbourne audience. That mm-hmm. Everyone comes late people only show up for the headliner if they're there early they're talking at the bar or they're they're standing there with their arms folded um looking slightly unimpressed even if they're enjoying it people know that melbourne crowds can be um can be tough and i was so frustrated because people were were talking through your set you were frustrated (laughs) (laughs) i I, want to know how you deal with that kind of thing um well thankfully it hasn't happened as much as you know if that happened every gig i'd be like all right i need another vocation here i (laughs) i wouldn't really love that but i found that it's all got to do with you know who you choose to play with obviously who you're supporting or the context of the venue like what the venue's doing and what the 
crowd is. I mean, that the time when hiatus were kind of coming to the fore and becoming super, super like the buzzed kind of word that everyone was talking about. Yeah. I think that when you're dealing with that kind of crowd, which it was on that night from memory, it's like you sort of just, you know, part of the atmosphere and and seeing it like that. Whilst at the time I was probably super frustrated, but <laughs> I think I sort of managed more and more to get better at understanding what a good set or what an engaging set yeah, was like. Yeah, still yeah. completely out of your control. You still have, could have the yeah. best set and best energy and everything like that, and you still people are still talking. And yeah. I just see it as like you're part of the atmosphere. And if you're not the main, yeah. like if you're the main act and people are talking, it's like, well, that's a bit of a different game. But if you're just a support, people aren't there. You know that they're not there to see you. So yeah, <laughs> you kind of have to swallow it a bit. Yeah. Oh man, I remember those days. Like at our own shows, we for a while at the start, really mainly in Melbourne, we did have to. I'm gonna say like train our crowds i I don't mean that you know in a disrespectful way but i think what i mean is like create the culture that we wanted at our shows and uh, we did for a while have to you really tell people to shut up i would see that as like because people are so excited to come to the gig and then it's just like they just want to like yeah you know they want to do both they want to listen but they also want to be with their friends it's like yeah it's it is a hard one yeah well we know what it's like Sam has not been hypothetical when he says telling people to shut up. I can probably count it on one or two hands the times that, Sam, you have actually not stopped a song, but before a song starts, you've told an audience. I remember the first time you did it. I didn't know what was going to happen. He said, just for this next song, it's going to be a quiet one. So this this is what we want to create for this song so can you please step one okay you gotta can you please help us create the space here and shut the hell up i think that's bloody great not in an aggressive way but it it it's worked and i think we've learned like you said ains like learned how to deal with it and roll with it in certain rooms i think heckling heckling is the worst like we used to play in my old band days we we did a festival a schoolies festival which for anyone that doesn't know is, is when the kids graduate and they go off to party and we did this terrible festival down in Victor Harbour in South Australia. And I had a bottle of, like, juice thrown at my face during the set. <laughs> oh, my God. And it spilled all over the stage. And then our bass player slipped over in the juice. <laughs> That's probably my worst my worst heckler situation. I, I had a really bad heckler, Sam. I think you remember <laughs> uh, playing an outdoor stage in Burwood at that little festival. Yeah. And the punk ska band I was in at the time we were playing out on stage and in the middle of one of the songs, I suddenly felt something just crush the back of my <laughs> legs and sort of scrape the skin off my ankles oh, no. and it was my amp. And I thought it had fallen over because we were, you know, we were moving the stage. It was sort of bouncing up and down and I turned around and there was this old man <laughs> wielding a, an iron bar. What? It was a crowbar. Yeah. A crowbar. Yeah. What? And he just, he was one of the neighbours. He'd come out of his house. He'd had enough. <laughs> and he's jumped up on stage and started smashing our gear oh over. God. He was almost more punk rock than any band there. It was pretty exciting. His face was so red oh and he was yelling. I couldn't hear him because the drummer was still playing. Like half the band was still going. 
but the bass player and myself was standing there in shock. <laughs> oh, that is volatile. Looking at this guy wielding. He a- was smashing up the amps and everything. He put a hole in one of the guys' amps. That, is, that is one of the most intense stories I've heard. <laughs> Definitely not experienced anything like that. Melbourne music scene, am I right? Oh, that's great, isn't it? We're lucky. <laughs> that's amazing. We shouldn't forget the fact that we did a song together, Ainsley. Yes. We did. We should talk about that. <laughs> it's so funny. My sister... I was on the phone to her the other day and she was speaking to a friend of hers who she hasn't seen for a while. But she's like, did you know that your sister is on the Paper Kites record? (laughs) (laughs) My sister's like, no, actually, I didn't know that. And I'm really bad at sharing. My sister was very proud and I'm very proud of being on that record too. That's (laughs) very nice. Well, we were very honoured to have you. A a bit of backstory to to getting you on that track. We... After first seeing you and hearing you in 2012 at the Northcote Social Club, did we agree on that? Yep, that's where it was. Yeah. We were on tour. It's like a small national tour. That was the first time any of us had heard you sing, and I remember being struck down by your voice. Literally, we had to get an ambulance in and everything. (laughs) Saying to the rest of the band, we've got to tour with her or do something with her. Ah, that's very flattering. Uh, We've always wanted to work with you, and... In all seriousness, it was a huge honour to have you sing on Steal My Heart Away. Mm. And I can honestly say I'm a big fan of your music from that time when I first heard you sing. So it's really exciting to have your name in the credits there and and to hear your voice the way you sung on that song was was awesome. Mm. Oh, that's so nice. That's very, (laughs) very lovely. I was honoured to be a part of it. And just that track in particular was so up my alley really well just i love it it kind of has that 80s kind of feel to it and that's something that i'm a sucker for 80s music <laughs> i remember you saying that when we were doing the session and i was thinking that you just dominated that style mm. even though in my head i thought it might be a push for you or it's a bit different to i, I guess the music that you've released and that i've known you for yeah no i definitely i can see why you would think that because i haven't you know released a lot of music like that i think the gold ep that i did with matt redlick who you guys worked with on that whole record didn't you yeah for, for mastering or mixing he he mixed and mastered the album yeah yeah, yeah he when we did that record, there was a couple. There was a song called Hawaii on that EP and um, Drive. Mm. I think that we're kind of trying to definitely, yeah. definitely borrowing from the eighty sound. But yeah, I'm. I love it. I'm a sucker for that kind of music. Yeah, nice. And I, th- I feel like with that song, I didn't actually think it was going to be on the record, but we all got together and agreed that that song had something about it. So I was really stuck on who might be the right person for that. And as you said, like we've kind of worked with a few of the same people. I'm thinking of um, Tom Yancek. So Tom produced on the train ride home and engineered it, and he did the same on uh, on Roses. And Ainsley, for anyone that doesn't know, uh, Tom has a band called Number One Dads, as well as his other band, Big Scary. Such, such good bands. Mm. Um, but particularly Number One Dads, I, I'm a, a very big fan of. And you did a song with Tom, so soldier Mm. amazing song and um i remember a while later when we were talking about this album we were talking with um yeah matt matt redlick who is a a wonderful person to work Mm. with i have a lot of love and a lot of respect for him and we're talking about this project and what we wanted to do with it and he actually suggested like why don't you try and get ainsley and when we got you in there because this is one of the few songs that we actually got to have you in the studio for a lot of them were done 
sort of remotely overseas back and forth, but this is one we actually got to do together. And that verse that you sung, that second verse, we hadn't written anything for it. So you actually just went in and I think we worked out the original melody was just a little bit low for you. That's right. So I just kind of said, just do whatever you want. (laughs) Which is the best thing in that context. And at the ending, you were just kind of riffing these little trills. It's my favourite part. There's one bit you do. I, I wonder if we're talking about the same thing, Dave. We do this, I'm going to screw it up when I sing it, but it's like, right at the end. This little thing at the end. And I've listened to that bit over and over because I love it so much. It's To me, it's it's like an accidental hook. The whole song, yes. I'm waiting for that little part at the end. Yeah. I've got yeah. it. It gets stuck in my head, the whole song, and I'm just waiting for it's it. It's a little tasty morsel in the outro. <laughs> Total fluke. I, I love being in that situation in the studio where it's mm. like, just do what you want to do (laughs) that's like the most liberating i mean sometimes it can be a bit daunting but i think it's Mm -hmm. so nice when i mean it should feel free shouldn't it yes for the most part music should feel pretty Mm. unbridled and and um fun yeah you know you're creating something and and it doesn't need to be censored or and i know that that's sometimes a struggle for a lot of musicians in the studio it's like i want to be energetically connected but i also want this to to stand the test of time and every single skerrick of dirt that's on the track needs to be taken out and, <laughs> you know, like ironed out so that it's yeah. quote unquote perfected. Yeah. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but more and more I'm just sort of leaning into a more warts and all approach when it comes to making or recording music and not to the point where it's like a distraction from the music, yeah. but more that in the past when I'm, I've been making songs, especially when Lawrence and I were working together a lot on music and, and releasing records and, you know, we'd do like 14 demos of one song. Yeah, nice. Mm. And part of that needs to happen. Part of that process you need to do because most of the time you're just trying to come up with an arrangement. Yeah. But then by the time you get in the studio to track it, it's like this has no essence of what happened in the beginning Mm -hmm. that's not to say that i'm not proud of the work that we've done together and it's it resonates differently to the other people that are hearing it outside of ourselves because it's they didn't labor through it but i definitely feel now a bit more liberated in going all right well is the song good yeah okay i think it's pretty good i think all the bad bones are there and Mm. and then sort of trusting the process trusting my experience having been in in that process for a long time and and not overthinking things yeah. and not squeezing the life out of ideas. Yeah. And I think actually Tom Yancek, who you were talking about before, is like he was someone that showed me that a lot in the way he m- makes music. I feel like he just doesn't overcook it ever. I think he's just really good at going, mm. all right, I think we got it. Let's walk away kind of thing. Yeah, he has a very honest but gentle approach to the way that you make music and he's just very sensitive sonically to try and keep the soul of the song Mm. in there, if that makes sense. Like I feel like he's a really great drawer of sound out of an instrument and the way he reflects it back is very soulful. Mm. 100%. Yeah. It can be be hard to trust yourself as a songwriter. Yes. Yeah. And and maybe more so I found as I get older, I trust myself less because what I'm taking in is greater. Like what I'm listening to is broader and can be hard to... To trust your instinct and I think that's a really good quality to have to not overcook your idea you become a sponge of everything you're, you're hearing different styles and innately what you create is just a mix of all those things and it can be good 
not to limit yourself and just let it come out. And that's something mm. I've noticed in your songwriting, Ainsley, that your catalogue actually spans a lot of different styles. It's very eclectic from, you know, like really synth-heavy pop tracks to 12-minute epics. I mean, I hear so many different influences coming from your songwriting. Mm. How does it work for you and what does that process look like? In my experience, the song tells you what it needs. That sounds like a weird thing to say, but, you know, I remember being in the studio with Matt Redlick actually when we first did, did an EP with him in 2014 mm-hmm. and, um, and we were working on Hawaii, which is like this really 80s, almost like Baywatch theme tune scene. Yeah, yeah. And this is why it's so amazing to work with someone like Matt because he has a really good sonic and musical palette and he's not really afraid to do anything. He's yes. not like trend-driven yep. necessarily. or So he was like, well, this sounds kind of like an 80s yeah. kind of vibe. Let's go all the way there. Yep. In terms of instrumentation and I feel like it's just, yeah, trusting that the song's going to show you what it means if you try and sort of make it into something that it's innately not it's always going to feel like it's a bit off yes, you know from, yeah. from my point of view yeah. sometimes it's about serving the song yeah. mm. sam I, I feel like you she's speaking your language in terms Big of time. let the song be what it wants to be mm. yeah well that was what phil x said to us one time when we were struggling with taking a song in a yeah. certain direction he said you know like this this wants to go that way so just let it go that way. Yeah, stop fighting against it. Yeah, exactly, and and play it that way and yeah. do it justice, mm. essentially. But I'm interested to know, Ains, this is maybe just diverting a little, but you mentioned before you're a big Radiohead fan, and, and we, we knew that because I think the first time we saw you, we could very much hear it through your music, and I think you even maybe did a Radiohead cover. Yeah, we used to do nude. Yes, yeah. I, I remember that really well because I thought this is so perfect for her. And um, I saw Radiohead a few years ago. We were playing a festival. They were playing the same festival, very different stages that we were on. They were on the, the really big one. We were on the very little one. Still, you're on the same bill as Radiohead. Um, Don't detract from yeah, that. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> anyway, I'd never seen them before. Um, and I look, I'm a fan. I'm not a diehard fan. Like I really appreciate them. And I'm a big fan of Johnny Greenwood's composition work as well. I think he's, he's an amazing composer. And I watched the show, I think it was maybe three hours long. And I stayed for the whole thing. I got very lost after that and couldn't get backstage to see the guy. That's another story. <laughs> but uh, I am interested to know, the, the thing that I feel about Radiohead and, and people that are Radiohead fans... Uh, and what I'm talking about here is is the accessibility of a song. Mm. And what I mean by that is that I feel like what Radiohead do after watching them for three hours play so few hits and just the depth of their compositions in their live show, I, I feel like as a band, their songs, and I'm not talking about the popular songs, you know, High and Dry and Fake Plastic Trees. I'm talking about the other songs that make up Radiohead that are Radiohead aren't incredibly accessible to the average Joe, and maybe that's what people love about them. But more and more, the older I get, and this is only my own experience and and what I'm valuing as a songwriter, I'm not so much interested in trying to push the creative envelope on on what I can do and what I can achieve in terms of the art form and, and trying to do something that is different and really thrilling and exciting from a musical and theory point of view. I'm more interested in trying to be a great songwriter which means accessibility for all kinds of people. Yeah. And that's that's something that I've learnt to appreciate about a good song is that I think it translates across all those different um, tastes and, and cultures. 
but I, I do think that there are those kind of bands that are a bit niche and, and that take a little more time to understand and, and are less accessible. So when it comes to your songwriting, like where do you kind of sit with that sort of stuff? Well, I think that I'm the way you write is determined by who you are, which is not saying much. Like it's a pretty obvious statement. But, <laughs> you know, if you're a pretty good storyteller, you love sharing stories, you love talking to people, you love a good old tale then you're more likely to be, in my opinion, a really good songwriter and, and mm-hmm. someone that can bring a story together in lyrical form. Maybe the musical density isn't as important. Mm-hmm. And that's something I definitely know that I'm not innately a great communicator. Mm-hmm. My language is melodic yeah. and harmonic, not so much lyrical. And it's something that I really value too, though. Mm -hmm. Like I value a well-written song that's lyrically and musically kind of aligned. But I definitely feel like I've had to try and practice being more in that field, you know, trying to, I think it was leaving uni in 2005. And then most of that experience, especially at VCA was about learning chords and Mm. chord structures and the ins and outs of music and theory and everything like that. And it was so testing at times, but I'm so grateful that I understood and learned what I did there because it really did inform the kind of music that I was making at that time. Mm -hmm. But if I'm looking back on my career, I suppose, since then, in the first instance, I think I was using harmony. Maybe it wasn't deliberately like in the forefront of my mind, but I wanted to make something that had twists and turns and it was going to actually like surprise people and it wasn't going to be what you thought it was going to be. It was Mm. because I I really love in a song where there's this chordal shift that you did not see coming and it's like, whoa, that really makes my ears prick up and Mm -hmm. I get excited by that. But as I've gotten older and as I've realised the effect that I can have on an audience through a really simple narrative, and especially if I'm being quite honest and vulnerable and opening my own story up into the audience, then I'm, I've, I've seen that my work as a songwriter and, and performer is actually the ability to connect mm. and what you were saying, Sam, like to be accessible to a large portion of people mm-hmm. because you can help them transform, hopefully, what they're going through or, mm. or just be something that helps them through a particular situation. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely love both ends of the spectrum yeah. and I feel like I sit kind of probably more in, in an abstract category. Mm-hmm. If you just left me to my own devices, <laughs> I reckon then I would be writing stuff that was kind of, if I didn't have any lens on that was like, oh, I'm, I want this to be accessible or really clear and narrative. I think I'd write stuff that was a little bit more abstract for sure. Yeah. Ainsley, you were mentioning before about creating your own currency as an artist Mm. and uh, and we love your music Mm. and in my opinion, you're the the pound sterling of singer-songwriters in Australia. (laughs) Oh, whoa. (laughs) Take that to the bank. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've wondered how to ask this question, but I think a lot of people would maybe ask this question and and we've been asked this question too. How is it that you're not more well-known in not only this country but but internationally too. Mm. It definitely has come up a few times throughout my time in the music industry Mm. and it sometimes hurts. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we talked about that question because we've been asked the same question before and um, I agree. It's a hurtful question because success and the idea of success is so subjective to the individual's journey. Absolutely. But... I still think we can agree that the general idea of people's version of success for a musician Mm. is 
playing huge venues and touring all the time and winning a bunch of awards and you know that that is what externally is viewed as success to to people that don't know the journey of of an individual musician i don't know if you'd agree with that but mm. yeah i i absolutely agree with that and i think oftentimes i've been asked that question about our band you know oh, why why aren't i hearing you on the radio like you guys are great why aren't you doing more shows it often comes from the question is asked from like an ignorant place or a naive place maybe is a nicer way to say it. But I enjoy explaining our version of success or the choices we've made, um, mm. rightly or wrongly. Every artist has the chance to paint a picture of the direction they've chosen and why. Yeah. And I, th- I, I guess that's w- what we're interested in. But And also, like, I see it's, it is totally about perspective, isn't it? Because... I see you guys as extremely successful and, like, success is is totally to do with your own idea of it. But then a big part of, like, my or well, the reason why I haven't sort of gone to the next point, I suppose, whatever that yeah. is, maybe just having a greater audience of people listening is um, probably got to do with the fact that it's taken me a while to really find my stride mm. as a person in the world. Mm. And by that, I mean just being comfortable with my choices and comfortable with the directions I'm taking. I think when I was starting out, I was probably a little bit more like, am I doing it? Is this, is this like, whilst I was pretty musically confident, the commercialized side of music, I was not confident in at all. Mm. And so, I didn't really know how to project a confidence outwardly. Yeah. I knew I had a musical, like an inward musical confidence, but then to project that out into the world, I, I really struggled with. Mm. And that's why maybe now I'm really like, oh, that's because you're not really like that. Mm. You don't really love being the centre of attention mm. despite you being the person that's in the middle of the stage most of the time singing. I love to sing. Mm. You know, I love singing, but I don't necessarily see myself as like show pony diva really charismatic performer Mm. i just i love music and i love to sing and that's what i try and share on stage Mm. i feel like success is part luck and a lot of hard work but also just this unshakable confidence Mm. in it in a really holistic way of like Mm. you're not ever apologetic for what you're doing just forging your own path Mm. and Whoever's coming along, great. Yeah. You know, there's no kind of looking or waiting for a reaction. It's just like you're in your art and you're doing it. That's right, yeah. yeah. Success is so subjective. And from what I was hearing about what you're working on now and where you're living and what you're doing, I personally would never question whether you desire more success or I, I wouldn't even think about asking that question. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what we're trying to do maybe through these conversations as well, is also break down the idea of success. Like mm-hmm. the people that think that it's playing huge venues and, and being on tour all the time and, and, you know, getting to play all over the world. Like that is not success. That's just an offshoot of a certain level. Mm. When you were talking about that, I remember my sitting with my dad and my art teacher at the time. My, my dad's an art teacher actually, and but his colleague, her name was... Susan Lowe, she knew that I was interested in going to study music at that point and she's like, what do you want to do? Like what do you, she almost like she was asking, you know, what what does success look like to you? Mm. And I remember saying that I want to be respected by my peers. Wow. That was like back at that point before I'd really even started releasing music that that was something that I felt like 
that I was after. Mm-hmm. I really wanted that. So, I mean, for better or worse, I think that's probably laced a lot of the decisions I've made is like wanting to maintain integrity mm-hmm. and and um, and wanting to do, like I was saying before, good work. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It's amazing that you had that um, kind of instilled upon yourself right from the start because I think that's such a good conversation for young artists to have with themselves because I, I feel like it's ideas like that respect and just a good work ethic that can really help you pad the idea of success and failure and, and potentially help combat the hardships of feeling like you've failed if you have a healthier idea of what success is. Yeah, I think that's awesome to talk about it, like you're saying, that, that you break the idea of success down in this context because it does need to be talked about, especially in the times that we're in now. Of, mm. I mean, there's so many musicians in mm. the world and there's so many people that are just beginning and wanting to be a part of this industry that's really changing and it will continue to change mm. How do you talk about success when there's no real, like when the classic common trajectories kind of yep. change, like going on tour and doing massive stadiums or whatever that's like catapulting you to continue to want to pursue a career is like mm-hmm. all of that sort of, it's really changing at the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so success to me is like walking out of a creative session where you've been sitting at the piano and you feel completely present mm-hmm. and you walk away feeling satisfied because you've spent time being present with yourself and you've made this thing that didn't exist before yeah you know like these little increments of success happen all the time but mm-hmm. sometimes they're completely overlooked aren't they yeah that's right they're so subtle those moments when you forget about the formula that you've been told or that you've believed and the waters are not muddied by any other idea or preconceived notion of what should sound good and you just create something that feels right and feels like an extension and an expression of yourself yes and feels like you've given birth to something (laughs) that needed to have life Mm. that's successful that you've done what you need to do as a person and it it feels wholly fulfilling i think it's almost it's almost like a spiritual pursuit i think Mm. there's like a a quote i think it was nick cave and he said um he said the actualizing of god through the medium of the love song remains my prime motivation as an artist. And I, I love that because essentially he's sort of saying that his, his motivation behind any song is, is to sort of um, materialize a sense of God or, or a sense of spirituality. And that is the pursuit. That's mm. kind of, I don't know if you, you resonate with that at all, but it definitely made sense to me is that I feel like that's all I'm ever doing is trying to materialize something in every song that can make, someone feels something and on a, on a deep spiritual level. Absolutely. I love that quote from Nick Cave. And as soon as you said that, I'm like, you definitely nailed that in, into my arms. It's, it is a feeling, like you're chasing a feeling. I think mm. that's what I remember reading a, a Jeff Buckley interview ages ago. And mm. It was like, you're just trying to find a vehicle for a feeling within songwriting. I love that. And um, it's true. It's like every single spectrum of emotion that you can feel will need a certain vehicle to carry the story mm. a lot across all the ambience or the mood or whatever it's it's endless isn't it mm-hmm. that's right yeah, and i think what is characteristic of artists is the need for emotion to be validated mm. and a feeling to be validated and recorded and and i think whether that happens through lyrical content or through harmonic content like you were saying ainsley is so satisfying to to create that and create something new that even just validated for yourself, not not anyone else even hearing it, but 
when you create something that that validates that sense of feeling and emotion and color. But for those people who are not fortunate to to write music or create art, their their feelings and emotions are validated by the art that other people create. So mm. that's why it's so important that we that we use what we have to communicate. Mm. Absolutely. And I feel like um, going back to the success conversation, like you know, how can you measure success when you when you're talking about connecting with people, whether it's one person or you know a thousand people? You can't say that any level of connection is more valid than another. Like it's, mm. it's if you're able to produce a song that hits even one person, then that's that's a job done as a songwriter. Absolutely. You can't have much more success than that. Like that is the whole point of what we're doing. Oh, so true. So, you know, I, I think um, you talked about respect before, Ainsley, and, and I think that that is something that you, you have achieved because you know, here we are sitting talking to you, really totally fanning out, to be honest. And, um <laughs> coming at it with a lot of respect and appreciation for what you've done and continue to do. And I, I love that you are teaching now as well. And I think that that's really important to be able to pass on that knowledge. And I, I hope that this podcast in the same way does that for people that are interested in songwriting and interested in the industry is, is that's almost the reason other than the, the record that we're talking about, the reason for these conversations is to document and to pass on knowledge. I love that. The idea of documentation, like taking a picture of a time and place and having that as mm. part of a discography or whatever you want to say, like an album, is one of my most favourite things Like, and, and such a good resource. I mean, it's amazing that you guys are making this podcast. So people would be like, oh, I should make a podcast about songwriting or whatever. And it's like you guys are actually doing it. And, yeah, I really appreciate you having me on board and I you know, it's not tip for tap, but I really respect what you guys are doing and have been doing as musicians and creatives. So it's been awesome to talk to you both. You hey, too. Absolutely our pleasure. Congratulations on everything you're about to give birth to. Mm. Child, new music. Thank you. Um, we're super excited for it. And uh, yeah, it's been great to chat and get a better holistic picture of who Ainsley Wills is. It was my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Ains. And uh, take care of yourself. And I very much hope that we'll see you soon. All right, ciao.